We're feeling emancipation from taking a nocebo before we head off to sing a love song with the silent twins in an anonymous club and learn the way of water from a wildcat. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. So, welcome back to the show, then. We are going to start with some brand new movies, as we do every single week. So, Van, talk to me about this, which is out in uh, in cinemas, A Love Song. Yeah, a love song. Now, this is... Actually, we should stress straight up back, because we had no show last week, so the, some of these movies have been out for a few days, and we've obviously got movies that are out today as well. So, a love song, which is... Um, I think it's the debut of writer, director, producer Max Walker-Silverman, and it stars Dale Dickey, who is one of those character actresses who... Y- you don't know her by her name, but you know her by her face. Like, she turns up in loads of things like Winter's Bone. Of all things, Iron Man 3. She's the, the woman that Tony goes to interview in a bar in Iron Man 3, who's like the mum of a, a, a dead soldier. Yeah. Um, it also stars uh, Wes Studi, who is another one of like those great character actors who, you know, he's that guy from That Thing. He's, he's that guy from Last of the Mohicans. He's that guy from Hostiles. You know his face, but if I, you know, put a gun to your head and say, like, tell me who West Studi is, you would have no idea. You would not be able to tell me. Um, so this is uh, this is the story of uh, a, a woman who, in a campground in sort of, you know, the American rural West, set up her trailer and is just sort of hanging out there. She's clearly getting over some sort of loss or deep trauma. Uh, she doesn't want to move on. She's waiting for something. She's dealing with something and one day she gets a knock at the door and and west duty is is there and it transpires that he is her former childhood friend and they sort of grew up together he met his wife she met her late husband he met his late wife she met her late husband they were sort of couple friends in their 20s kind of a thing and then they they drifted apart and went off and and lived their lives and the drama as it transpires is they are both now Widows, and over that widows. Oh, sorry, I've got to do that for American dad. Every time I hear the word widows, it's always going to be widows. Um, God help me whenever I have to talk about the brilliant Steve McQueen remake of the movie Widows. Widows. Um, but over the course of one night, these two sort of long time estranged but still quite affectionate close friends just get to know one another. All, all over again, really. They just hang out. And of course, the love song refers to a song that they learn to play together, as you can hear in this clip. You still play? Play what? Music. Of course not. Starts out in G and moves to a C. Uh oh. I gotta cheat that one. <laughs> Back to the G. G. And up to a D. Yeah. That's it. Back to the sea, take it on home to G. Yeah. And it moves like uh... You've made it sound like quite a nice, a lovely, quaint, romantic kind of love, love movie, but there is a fine line sometimes between that and cheesy. Does it cross that line? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Not in the slightest. I mean, to, to call it a romance, I think, is is really sort of overselling that element. Anyway, oh. it is more of an effect, just an affectionate 
drama about this wonderful friendship that does tip over periodically into romance. There is a, a romantic element. There is a, you know, an, an old flame element between the two of them. But it's not really about that. And it's more about just the emotional connection between two people. In, in, in the way that, you know, some of the best romances, effectively, and best dramas can be. All about the chemistry between West Studio and Dale Dickey in this. But just a, a really sweet, really touching drama with some really great cinematography as well. The, the way that it uses the environment, the way that it just has these two just disparate souls in the middle of this just vast wilderness, the, the vast open American landscape. It's, it's just beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful film. It's not very long. Either. It's only 81 minutes long, which means that once you factor in credits and things like that, this thing plays for like an hour and 10 or up to an hour and 15 minutes long. And to be fair, it doesn't really need to be any more than that. Wonderfully realised, beautifully played, just perfectly shot. The performances, I say, just absolutely terrific. Um, Dale Dickey and Wes Studi both, I think absolutely just barnstorming performances from them both. And they are not, like I say, household names, but they are faces that will be recognised in households, if you know what I mean. Um, brilliant. I, I had a great time with this. It's not going to be a crowd pleaser by any stretch of the imagination because it's not the most exciting movie in the world. But it is quite a moving and affecting drama. And it's it's one that, to be fair, I will watch again. I could see this turning up on film four a few months from now or the weeknight, kind of 8pm, kind of a yeah. deal. If you get the chance to see it that way, absolutely do. But if you're looking for something different, if you want a date movie with a difference and you, are quite a, you, you want quite a thoughtful date movie, go and see this this weekend. Perfect for a date movie because, as you say, an hour and ten minutes, at that point, you're ready to... Anyway, uh, so, uh, moving on. Uh, Anonymous Club, which has been out since Friday the 9th. Um, now, I have seen nothing about this. Right, so I'm just going to read you the, uh, the IMDb blurb, because I, I don't think I can okay. sum this up any, any better than the uh, IMDb synopsis here, which says that this is an intimate access to the private life of Courtney Barnett, an oh. anti-influencer who is a powerful voice for our times. Um... Before I get into the anti-influencer thing, I will just say that just seems like a particularly knobbyish way of saying she's a singer. <laughs> Here's a clip. I had a submission on my website with a, a comment box asking people to tell me how you really feel. It's been really humbling and really beautiful reading uh, what people are willing to share and to, uh, to be open about I'm gonna read you some there's like literally thousands of them feeling lonely but I don't know why feeling exhausted but don't want to show it a little guilty but generous giddy with falling in love happy but stressed brave and terrified Wow, I feel if I went to see that in the cinema, I would walk out feeling really depressed. I mean, you wouldn't own up to seeing it, which I presume is why it's called Anonymous Club. Uh, I, I, I have no other earthly idea about the title. I mean, I'll be honest, it's entirely possible that they explained the title and I was sort of zoned out by that point. Honestly, it's such a low-energy, boredom-inducing, just coma-fulfilling affair. Um, I mean, the, the anti-influencer tag, I, 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 I think this, I can only imagine that comes from the fact that she really should not be allowed to influence anybody whatsoever. She's just such a mind-numbing, whining pain in the ass to sit down and listen to. <laughs> 
Like, it's 86 minutes long, and they are 86 of the longest goddamn minutes of my life. Like, I felt every second of it. There's an old line from Doctor Who that he can literally feel the turn of the earth. I felt like that during this, only I didn't feel the turn of the earth. I felt every solitary second of time and space passing me by. That clip is genuinely indicative of the entirety of this movie. Save for a couple of scenes here and there where we get, like, her on stage performing. And believe me, the musical side of this ain't much more exciting. It really isn't. I've been asking around, because obviously we, we, you know, we're going to review this last week. We didn't get to to do the show in the end. Um, I've been asking around. I don't know anyone that's heard of her. I've not encountered anyone. I've asked older people, I've asked younger people. Either nobody has heard of her, or, and I'm more willing to believe this, nobody will own up to having heard of her. Nobody will willingly admit to knowing her. And having sat through this absolute work of boredom-inducing tedium, I can absolutely understand why. It's called Anonymous Club. If you've seen it, maybe stay anonymous. Don't Answer see me this. this. Go on. Uh, what's what uh, from what you've said and what I've heard? What was mm-hmm. the point of it? Pass, pass. No point. No idea. <laughs> no, if, if, if answers on a postcard, please. If anyone wants to tweet me and tell me what the goddamn point was of any of this, please. Honestly, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I, I live to learn. Please inform me, because <laughs> I just I could not tell you what the hell the point of this even existing was. All right. Well, if you uh, have decided to go against Van's uh, Van's advice and go and see it, it's been in cinemas since the 9th of December. Um, right. We are going to be back very soon when we talk about Wildcat and also Emancipation. Um, so both of them are... In fact, Wildcat's out on the 23rd, isn't it? Whereas Emancipation, mm. that was out on the 9th. That, that was out on the 9th, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's cinemas and Apple TV Plus from the, from the 9th, yeah. All right. Well, we'll be talking about those two in just a bit, so stay right there. Hello, and we are back. We are going to stick with some brand new movies. Um, Now, we're going to talk about Emancipation in just a moment. But first, we're going to talk about Wildcat, which is out uh, today. Sorry, sorry, I've got that wrong. Sorry, it's out on on Amazon Prime. It's in cinemas uh, and on Amazon Prime uh, from the the 23rd. I've I've messed the script up on that one, but which is a shame because this is a hell of a a one, this one. Uh, Right, so I sat and watched this the other day. (laughs) Sat in the screening room in central London, just myself and George Savides sat and watched this. And... uh, if you ever, there is there is no more uh, embarrassing a moment than two grown men sat alone in a darkened room sobbing, <laughs> which is uh, kind of what happened here. Um, now, some people may know this story. I didn't, uh, but friends of mine who I've mentioned this documentary to in passing were familiar with the story, and because evidently its its subject does have something of a following via social media and Instagram in particular. Said subject is Harry Turner. He is an Afghanistan veteran, young, quite a young guy. Went off to Afghanistan, came back, shell-shocked, riddled with PTSD, depression, couldn't find his way in the world, eventually felt to, felt the best course for him. The best course for him was to remove himself from society, to take himself away from his family and his loved ones. And he literally just up sticks and went to the Amazon. Where he found wow. his yeah he found his calling in looking after endangered animals animals who faced risks from poachers and things like that and at first he he forms a bond with a young ocelot cub uh, known as Khan 
who, you know, and this is within the first like 15 minutes of this documentary, which by the way is it's an hour 46 long. So this is now like 15 minutes in. So this is obviously not the central focus, but it's a part of it. A young ocelot cub named Khan, who he bonds with, he forms quite an intense bond with. And unfortunately, Khan uh, meets a sticky end at the, at the hands of poachers. And this oh. absolutely destroys him all over again. And he starts he starts to lose himself all over again, this time, you know, in the Amazon. And then meets another ocelot cub, also in need, and finds himself able to take everything he learned with Khan and parlay this into his relationship with the next ocelot cub, who he raises to full maturity, which is about 18 months. We follow the, the development of this cub over eight, the first 18 months, really. And uh, the, the second cub is named Keanu, and is about the bond that forms between Har- his name's Harry Turner uh, and Keanu. I will say as well, just and this is where you, I, I can be a little bit cynical, uh, he finds himself in the Amazon jungle after meeting Samantha, a young American lady who uh, you know is, is running this program, looking after these animals. And he, as he says, you know, I met her and I felt this intense connection. And then you see her, you physically see her. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you felt a very in- intense connection there, pal. I absolutely <laughs> But don't let that take away. Please don't let that cynicism take away from a genuinely beautiful, really, really moving documentary. Have a listen for yourself. This is this is Samantha talking about meeting Harry and his bond with the animals. You know, when I came across Harry, he was extremely misunderstood. This, you know, boy who went to war instead of going to college, which is what a lot of people see when they look at him. But I obviously saw something super special in him. He spent his time in the jungle volunteering and helping me with like this greater cause. Carrying a sloth on my back through the jungle. It was an incredible feeling to know that this animal wasn't going to be going onto the black market, to know that its claws weren't going to be clipped or its teeth weren't going to be ground down. No more fighting on the face. Oh, a mix of sadness and delight all in one. No wonder you were in tears with the Kleenex. But, I mean, I'll tell you something. I had to cut the clip for this. I was sat in the coffee place yesterday with my laptop cutting the clip for this, and I was genuinely on the verge of blubbing. I could feel it brewing under the surface, just being reminded of some of the stuff from this documentary, seeing the the, just the bits in the trailer that we cut there. And yeah. it, it's a really, really moving story on several levels. Uh, you can take this uh, as, you know, as a sort of, you know, it's the old school, you know, a boy and his dog kind of a story, but obviously applied to, you know, PTSD-stricken veteran and his ocelot cub, you know, but in the same kind of way. And it is about that relationship as much as it is about the relationship between Harry and Samantha, as much as it is about Harry and his relationship with his own mental health, his relationship with his family. There are a lot of layers to come at this from. Um, and And they all work. I mean, I'll be really honest, it's slightly over long, maybe by 15 to 20 minutes. I feel like you could have cut this down to maybe 85 to 90 minutes. Like, it does meander ever so slightly. But, to be fair, this I can't think what I would cut from it. it although it does drag in places, I still don't know what I would physically cut from it. It's a very moving, really touching, and very well shot chronicle of this story as well and it does all build to this denouement that I, I did find quite uplifting not quite in the way that I expected 
but just a really sincere, really heartfelt, you know, chronicle of this man's story. And like I say, there are people out there who will know the story of Harry Turner and, and will know about his relationship with both Khan and Keanu. Um, I haven't had the chance to look him up on Instagram, uh, which I'm, I'm told is, you know, an adventure all to himself. I'd be fascinated to see, you know, the things he's gone on to since then, because we get a little taste of it, you know, at the end of the at the end of the film. Um, I'll be interested to see what came from from this because I'd say I, I found it a really really fascinating story. It sounds like there's a lot to, to, to be learned from watching this as well, which is always a good thing with something so delicate as uh, as poaching and, and animals. Yeah, you'll fall in love with an ocelot, for one thing. That's one <laughs> thing you'll learn. Amazing. All right, well, that's Wildcat. Uh, let's move on to Emancipation then, uh, which came out uh, last Friday. What's yeah. this all about? So last Friday uh, in in cinemas, it's going to be on Apple TV Plus shortly. I can't seem to find a date on that either. Uh, so this stars Will Smith, is uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua, based on the true story of Whipped Peter, a very famous photograph uh, from the American Civil War of the slave. It's a black and white photo that appeared in Harper's Bazaar as part of a, a triptych in Harper's Bazaar, and it was of this slave's back. He found his way to freedom, found his way to uh, Lincoln's army, effectively, and was then sort of drafted back into the conflict and drafted in as a soldier because he had knowledge of the terrain and things. But also the picture that they took of him when he arrived at the camp wound up becoming, you know, this in, this international watershed moment that came to define how so many people knew, you know, viewed the practice of slavery, you know, the industry of slavery at the time. Mm. Uh, for the purposes of our movie, though, it's effectively The Fugitive, in which Will Smith is Peter, who goes on the run, having overheard from his, you know, slave masters, that the slaves are free, don't tell them, don't let them know. He overhears this, gets his chance to run, very much takes that chance and finds himself hunted across the the, the Georgian or Florida swamps by uh, by by the most venomous sort of young Tommy Lee Jones type uh, you can imagine, played by none other than Ben Foster. I was going to say Boyd Holbrook because they're kind of interchangeable. They look very physically the same, Boyd Holbrook and Ben Foster. Um, but Ben Foster in full snarling villain mode, and you've got Will Smith employing all of his savvy swamp navigating skills, like dousing himself in onions and things like that to throw off the scent of the dogs just trying to outrun the men on horseback and the wild dogs that are trying to stop him reaching Lincoln's army. Have a listen. You walk the earth because I let you. I'm your god now. Slaves are free. We must get to Baton Rouge. Through this one, Lincoln's army is there. There are many ways to die in a swamp. That's just put all sorts of images in my head. I love the sound of this. I mean, first of all, those images are in near black and white if you're doing it properly, because the movie is. It's got it's got interesting <laughs> use of very interesting use of color. There is some color in it, and it, it, it comes with certain emotional moments. Like the color will flare up to determine the mood and tone of a scene. Um, it, this is I, I thought this was incredible. I mean, it has been smack taught by a lot of snootier critics, but mm, what do you know? Anyway, uh, so it's an interesting movie. It'd be in that you have to separate the art from the artist on this one, in particular the last year in the life of Will Smith. And it is a shame because I do very firmly believe that were it not for 
that incident at the Oscars, Will Smith would have achieved, you know, the unthinkable, would have become the first African-American actor to ever uh, win consecutive Best Actor awards. There are actually, incidentally, only two actors who have done that, two two male actors who have done that. They were Spencer Tracy, Spencer Tracy and uh, Tom Hanks. They're the only actors who have won Best Actor two years in a row. Wow. And uh, I think, I genuinely believe Will Smith could have managed that. This is, in a sense, the perfect Oscar movie. It, in the, let's say, two hours, 12 minutes, doesn't waste a moment of it. At one point, the movie seems to end, and then do, and then sort of and then does the thing that I wish that Twelve Years a Slave had done, which was take that title card at the end, where you then give us an entire third act that's infinitely better than everything we've seen before, and this time actually do that third act. I thought this was great. I think Smith's performance. This is like next level Smith. Smith is always good. Like he's always Smith is a born movie star. I don't think anyone's ever debated that. Agree. There's never really been a debate. Always been a, a born movie star. Some of his films are crap, admittedly, but you never argue with him in them. Even in a crap movie, Will Smith is good. Here you've got a damn good movie, and Will Smith is spectacular in it. Like I say, Ben Foster, perfect snarling villain. Antoine Fuqua, training day director, just shoots the hell out of this. I, I loved it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Do not be shocked. To hear this come up in contention, you know, a lot around awards season, but obviously I don't think the best actor nods are going to be thrown around given, you know, certain events earlier this year. And that is a shame. That is a real shame. Because I do think Will Smith is genuinely spectacular in this. Definitely one that I want to see from what you've said and from that clip. It sounds absolutely brilliant. Uh, so that was out from last Friday, Emancipation, if you want to give that a whirl. Um, we are going to be back in a moment when we talk about the silent twins and also Nocebo, both of those to be reviewed by Van in just a minute. Stay there. And we are back. Hello to you if you're listening to us in the gym, in the car, at work, in bed, on the sofa, whatever you may be up to this week. Uh, two more brand new movies to review. Uh, we're going to look at Nocebo in a moment. But first, something really fascinating, The Silent Twins. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this in bed, I I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, the, <laughs> you might want to question some things about your life, but uh, so, uh, The Silent Twins, uh, which is... Uh, I had the chance to see this at the LFF. I missed out, and I, I really regret it now, because I, I watched this on Link at home. I was kind of blown away by this. Uh, so this is based on uh, the lives of June and Jennifer Gibbons. Uh, we mostly, I think, know June Gibbons as she's the author. She became an author, and her story became quite known. They were two young girls who they were twin girls uh, in Wales in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, who would only communicate with one another. They, they could speak, but they would only speak to one another, like in their bedroom with the door shut alone. Kind of they wouldn't talk to their parents. They wouldn't talk to, I think, their older sister. They created a serious divide in their family. And the only person they ever really let in was this sort of roguish bad boy love interest that they, they both shared and both entered into a, a, a teenage relationship with. And as part of this quite destructive relationship, they got into sort of acts of vandalism and things that then saw them actually, you know, put, actually taken to court, put on trial. And in what was deemed to be quite a severe and controversial judgment, sent to Broadmoor of all places, because quite frankly, the system just didn't know how to treat or handle them. 
And of course, this then led to, you know, immense tragedy down the line. They are played here by Tamara Lawrence and Letitia Wright. I'm not overly familiar with uh, Tamara Lawrence, but of course, Letitia Wright, uh, you know, Black Panther sister Shuri, kind of the lead, the de facto lead of, of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, have a listen. This is, this, is the, this is the pair in their bedroom awaiting the arrival of their, you know, their much anticipated typewriter that's going to allow them both to pursue their literary dreams. Lovely, your life is here, Jenny. Postman. Has she got a package? Jenny! Look! Did I arrive? <laughs> the heart of conversation. How'd you open it? Push. And lift. Let me just clarify, you might have already said this, this is based on a true story, isn't it? This is. So you may well know the the, the actual true story. I've asked people, or I've asked like you know, friends of mine if they if they knew. Some of them actually did did know the story specifically oh. because they knew the work of, uh, of of June Gibbons. I think she goes by Jane in some circles uh, as well. She's uh, Letitia Wright's character, incidentally. Um, this I thought this was absolutely superb, and again, this got some quite sniffy reviews. It's quite surrealist in places because it actually uses um, poetry and drawings and art by the Gibbon sisters themselves and they actually ah. call this into the aesthetic of the movie there's a wonderful sequence in which they're effectively tripping in a sort of subway underpass and you actually see the walls and the environment come to life around them I thought this was this was really affecting and it's, it's not some because it's not so much a story about mental health as much as it is just this you know really loving relationship between these two sisters that the world around them just doesn't quite know how to handle there is a decent supporting cast that includes the likes of like michael smiley uh, for instance but it's not really about that it, it's a brought to the screen by um polish writer director Ag- Ag- agnieszka smozinski i'm trying to uh, get the name right agnieszka smozinski and i think handled really really well it's based on um the novel by marjorie wallace which i think is actually called um the silent twins and I, I think it's a wonderful showcase for, for two incredible young talents. I, I've, I've been in Letitia Wright's corner on the performance front, less so the sort of real-world controversy side, obviously. But in terms of like her, her performance front for a good long while now, I think she's you know a real talent to watch. But Tamara Lawrence as well, who I was nowhere near as familiar with, I think is an absolute barnstormer in her own right as well. I'm a sucker for a true story, so this kind of um, this kind of thing that is quite fascinating at the same time is you know it's drawn me in already. So um, mm. it, this is one I would I would definitely enjoy. Uh, so that's the Silent Twins, which was out last Friday. Now let's talk about Nocebo. Yeah, Nocebo, new movie by uh, Lorcan Finnegan, who directed Vivarium about two, three years ago with uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots, which I was quite a fan of. It was kind of a Black Mirror uh, type thing about uh, sort of the, uh, those new, identical new build houses as a sort of horror movie aesthetic. Uh, but this is something very different. So this stars Ava Green uh, and Mark Strong as a, a married couple who... She's a fashion designer. She's a children's fashion designer who at the start of the movie receives a phone call. We only hear her side of the phone call. She receives a phone call uh, in which she's clearly been told some horrific and bad news. All we get, the only bit we hear from the conversation is, wait, wait, what, they're pulling bodies out? 
And at the same time that she gets this news, she starts to experience like horrific visions, beginning with a sort of a, a, of rabid, inf, you know, flea-bitten, infested dog who sort of stares her down as as bugs start to find their way onto her flesh. Flash forward a year or so, and there's a knock at the door. She's got a new a new au pair slash housekeeper, um, played played by Chai Fonasir. Fonseca, but Chai Fonseca, who she has evidently hired, but has seemingly forgotten about hiring because she has now deteriorated both physically and mentally based on whatever this phone call was, whatever the events were behind this phone call. And as she starts to deteriorate more and more, Chai Fonseca's character, the new au pair, starts to find herself more and more integral to this family and more and more at the centre of all the strange goings on. Have a listen. This is Ava Green having what seems to be sort of an attack at dinner. And and, and their, new, their new au pair, Diana, effectively giving her the treatment of tickles. Okay. Alright. Okay, come on, let's get you up. Huh? Can I help? No, no, she just needs rest, is all. We know what to do. Can I try? It's okay. I can help. It's okay, it's okay. I make it go away. Kind of horrifying with the music. Oh, it's chilling. This creeped me out. You you know some of the horrific stuff I can sit through. This has unsettled me. Um, This this is just this was just really absolutely terrifying at times. Chilling in that in that in in a very helpless way, in a way that makes you feel quite helpless as the as helpless as the characters within it. All about the performances, all about the atmosphere. Um, I expect great things from Mark Strong and Ava Green, if I'm, if I'm honest. I do, but I thought Chai Fonseca is the real discovery here. Um, her, her performance as Diana is at, one, is at once both very chilling and also quite investable, a character you, you find yourself quite rooting for. And it's a difficult balancing act, particularly given where the story needs to go. I will also say that I, 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 I thought this was superbly put together, just wonderfully realised, really well brought to the screen. But an interesting uh, thing to release in cinemas, given conversations we've been having recently as regards the treatment of workers during the World Cup, for instance, and things like that, uh, particularly elements of like human slavery and you know certain uns- un- unsavoury elements like that in the world. Very interesting uh, film to put out at a time when we're having these conversations. And I will say, absolutely unmissable stuff. Especially if you want, if you're one of those people that, that you know, loves a good, you know, chilling horror tale, and you're not afraid of a bit of symbolism as well, mm. this is absolutely one for you. If you are one of those people who likes a horror movie but doesn't like your symbolism, however, well, you shouldn't be watching horror movies to begin with and avoid this at all costs. But I thought this is an absolute five star riot of a film. Any jumpy moments? Because I love that in horror movies when they when, when it makes you jump. Loads the scene. Oh, good, 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 good. I like that. Um, all right, no Sibo. Uh, if you want to watch that, then uh, that is out in cinemas already. Um, okay, this next bit 
I am very much looking forward to because Van is going to review the brand new Avatar, The Way of Water, and I cannot wait to hear his thoughts. I've got a feeling I know what he's going to say, but we'll find out in a minute. Stay there. Hello and welcome back for one last ride. Uh, we are sticking with a brand new movie again to talk about now. I'm quite excited to hear what Van has to say about the brand new Avatar movie, The Way of Water. We have been waiting, what, is it 11 years, 12 years? I think it's, I think it's 12, I think it's 12 years now uh, since, since the last uh, the last Avatar movie. I said like the only other Avatar movie, but get used to it because you're not going to have to wait very long for the next one, which I think is next Christmas. Then we get a Christmas off and then we get the fourth one and then the following Christmas is the fifth one. So there are going to be five Avatar movies mm-hmm. by the time we're done. And believe me, if you watch this second one, you are genuinely going to wonder why. Because there's just there is not a franchise in this. There's 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 not a series in this. I anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Not the point of an Avatar movie, obviously. I don't think anyone is showing up to this for the story, evidently. So we open this. We open the sequel to Avatar more or less straight after the end of the first one in which, you know, the humans were sort of kicked off of, of the alien moon of Pandora. Uh, Jake Sully, the paraplegic marine, was now permanently sort of uh, downloaded into his avatar body, his human body. He more or less just killed, like, intentionally, and has, and has now gone to live as a Na'vi. What we get, then, is effectively a, a brief skim through, you know, the years that follow, in which, uh, you know, Jake... Who, Still goes by Jake, even in his in his Navi form. Jake and his his love Natiri start a family. They have kids of their own. They also adopt a child, Kiri, played by Sigourney Weaver, who is in fact the Navi child of Sigourney Weaver's Navi avatar from the first movie, who's being kept in a tank and has evidently had a child through what seems to be immaculate conception. Wow. They also adopt another child, only this one's a human, named Spider, and he apparently is the son of the bad guy from the first movie who they just never mentioned. And he was unable to be sent back to Earth with the rest of the humans because apparently children can't go in the cryo-freezers or, or whatever. So, we get this new status quo. We then jump forward another year. I, I don't know why. I don't know why they then feel the need to add another year onto this. It's, but it kind of smacks of the level of storytelling that we're, we're working with. And the humans return to Pandora. This time with even greater numbers and a, a more dominant military force than before. Obviously, the sort of science side of the first movie seems to have been done away with. They're now more militarised. We, they've also got, along for the ride, a bunch of new Navi Avatar bodies into which they have downloaded digital backups of the dead bad guys from the first movie. And we are literally told this by holographic recordings of said bad guys from the first movie that they apparently recorded five minutes before the third act of the first movie began. So Stephen Lang literally reappears on a screen to say, I'm about to go in and do the third act of Avatar, but there's a chance I might die. So if you're watching this, then clearly you're my Avatar body and you're just going to download this little chip that's a digital backup of my brain into you and do me a favour, go and kill Jake. Avenge me. Which, if you're keeping score, 
doesn't make a lick of sense because the plot of the first movie literally revolved around them having to ship Jake Sully across the galaxy even though he was in a wheelchair because he was the only person genetically compatible with his dead brother's avatar. So the movie begins by literally making no sense out of the first one. And this that's before we even get to why the hell the humans are there or how we've somehow forgotten about the existence of Unobtainium, which last time I checked was the entire motivation for the Avatar universe. But who cares? Because, like I say, the bad guys are back. They want to hunt Jake and his family, and they are just going to lay waste to all the Na'vi to get to him, knowing full well that he can't stop them because apparently six Na'vi is enough to take down all of the other Na'vi again. This is not something that's been done for storytelling reasons. Um, in order to save his people, Jake and his family go into hiding. And they go and they just up sticks, get on their flying space dragons, and they go uh, to basically to the other side of Pandora and set up camp with a new tribe of Navi, who this time are water-based. And the plot then basically becomes the exact plot of the first movie, only this time we have to learn to ride water creatures and become one with water nature, rather than learn to ride flying creatures and become one with tree nature. I'm making this sound more complicated than it needs to be, because, frankly, the movie is so ridiculously simplistic it's insulting to intelligence. Have a listen. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Outcasts, that's all they see. Dad, I'm a warrior like you. I'm supposed to fight. Protect the people. Do you know, I am really disappointed that you just said all of that because I feel... I was expecting an amazing movie like the first one. I feel, from your explanation of how that starts, five minutes in, I will be on my phone checking my Facebook or Twitter feed. I mean, first of all, an amazing experience like the first one is a very interesting comment because I think people have really strange nostalgia for the first movie, and I think that's entirely down to the fact that it's the first 3D movie that most people saw. The first Avatar is not a great movie. I rewatched it recently. It's better than I gave it credit for at the time, but not by much. These are not particularly involving movies, and they're not particularly complex or interesting movies. The thing that fascinates me with them as well is the slogan, the mantra of these movies is, I see you. And that's an interesting turn of phrase to use because these movies are entirely about visuals, entirely about the actual experience of being in the cinema and enjoying the 3D. Now, I got to see this in high frame rate, you know, 3D on film, etc. Odeon Master Square, and it was a brilliant experience. It was a crap film. What a brilliant experience! You know what I mean? It's it's like you know, you, going on a roller coaster isn't Shakespeare. You know what I mean? And when you take most of the humans out of Avatar, what you're left with is effectively a Pixar movie, albeit one that is three hours and twelve minutes long. But it doesn't need to be that length. It's most important to know. I would beg to differ, and I'll tell you why. Because I think that twelve years ago, when this movie came out. 
it was groundbreaking. Admittedly, mm. I haven't seen it since, and maybe my memory has built built it and built it and built it over the 12 years. But I remember watching it 12 years ago, and it wasn't in 3D, and I just thought, mm. what a great, amazing concept, and how amazing is that? You know, the the, the, the colours and, and what, they, what they've done with the CGI, and to me, that's what made it an amazing movie. Um, obviously, I'm not a film critic, so I don't follow the narrative maybe the way that you would. But personally, to me, and you know, I would say quite a lot of people would probably say the first Avatar was a good movie. Fair point. I will say, if you like the first Avatar movie, you're going to like this just as much because it's the yeah, this same sounds too complicated. Damn movie. It's the same <laughs> movie. He's literally the man who reinvented the sequel twice with Aliens and Terminator 2 has just phoned this one in. And that is heartbreaking <laughs> to me because he is my favourite filmmaker ever. Yeah. Now, there's, there are issues. First of all, it, it's very difficult to tell any of the characters apart because they all look the same. So when you start getting to the big third act action sequences, you, you, you start finding the Transformers problem rearing its head, which is, you know, when you watch the live action Transformers movies, it's very hard when they're in a fight to tell who's who. Mm. And as such, you can't really invest in it and you can't care. There's also the, the issue of interchangeable characters. At one point, there is a character death, for instance, and you are expected to really be emotionally rooted in this. You just don't care. You simply do not care because... These aren't characters. They are, pun intended, simply storytelling avatars. And it just simply doesn't work. Uh, the idea that there is any kind of mythology to this is ludicrous. The idea that anybody even bothered to rewatch the first one before they sat down to write this is frankly insulting to the intelligence of its audience because no, they did not. No, I could have done this from, like, from memory. I didn't need to rewatch the first one. As it happens, I did. I rewatched every James Cameron movie before I saw this because, you know, I'm a Cameron fan. And, you know, I, I'm a Camelite. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the guy. Um, I think Avatar is straight up his weakest film. Incidentally, Aliens, Terminator 2, his best. Mm. And... It does seem like he really just wanted to make the same movie again with water. And fair play to him, the water stuff's amazing. But then again, all of the visual stuff in this is amazing. Albeit, you know, say for not being able to, you know, tell the characters apart. I, there isn't a franchise in this. There really isn't. It is one of the laziest attempts at world building. I mean, it's, it, there's not even actually really an attempt at world building. It is a solitary one-off confined story. This does not feel like, oh, it's you know chapter two of a series of five. It just feels like, yeah, we needed a sequel. Yeah. Wasn't there something about the reason it took 12 years to come up with this is because James Cameron was waiting for the technology to be available for him to be able to do it? It's worth noting that he did invent the technology for this. He invented the technology for Avatar and Elite Battle Angel. I'll be really honest, I'd rather have seen a sequel to Elite Battle Angel because, frankly, there's more of a franchise in that. This just... I, I found myself all the way through thinking of Fern Gully 2, A Magical Rescue, which is not something I should be thinking about in a, you know, 200-plus million dollar sequel from the man that made Aliens and T2. God damn. I'll agree with you on one thing, and that is if if Avatar The Way of Water is, mm -hmm. as you say, the same as the first one, 
I would get bored. Like you need something different. A hundred percent agree with that. Um, which is a, which is just a massive shame. So um, I'm gutted. Uh, I will watch it because I really enjoyed the first one, as I said. But everyone's gonna watch it. But this thing's projected to make half a billion dollars in its opening weekend. Everyone's gonna watch it because it's been 12 years since the last one. So everyone has a sort of rose-tinted, you know, backwards view of the first one. But also, it's not like we're awash with big blockbusters. And having said that. No one does action like James Cameron. It is true. There is that visceral crunchiness, even to a live-action cartoon like this. James Cameron still shoots the absolute hell out of it. Because you know what? At the end of the day, he's still James Cameron. His storytelling, his storytelling ability seems to have gone right out the window. But he's still James Cameron. He's still going to thrill you. <laughs> Well, there you go. You can make your own mind up because Avatar The Way of Water is out in cinemas from today. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, next week, which is our last podcast of the year until the 6th of January, by the way, just in case you care, uh, we are going to look at I Want to Dance with Somebody. Yes, the Whitney Houston about. biopic is yeah, it's, the Whitney Houston biopic is finally here with very little fanfare, it seems. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Peter von Kant as well. Not heard anything about that. Yeah, be careful I pronounce that one as well, Adam. Just, just, just a warning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Corsage as well. Van will be reviewing next week. Yes, Vicky creeps in a period, uh, a period piece dramedy. Uh, she's always a good time. I can't wait. And Empire of Light, which is another one yeah. I've not even seen the trailer for yet. Well, this is Olivia Colman in a new movie from Sam Mendes, you know, whose Ooh. last movie was 1917. So, you know, there's, there's high hopes for this one. This one could be an Oscar contender. Apparently, it is about an old, like, old-fashioned cinema. It's about the love of movies, about British cinema. So, you know, there's, there's reason to be excited for that one, I think. There's some, some really good uh, movies to chat about next week, then. Uh, so, until then, uh, on off-screen, we will see you then. I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return.